Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the CDC Podcast, Episode 1. Before the show begins, I must apologize for peaking and some audio quality issues on this first podcast episode. I promise you that next week and the weeks coming will progressively improve on the quality. But bear with me this first time and enjoy the podcast. I am your producer, Demonic Murray, from the blog Graduate School Gamer. With me is Alex Myers from Show and Tell. Hello. Ben Abraham from SLRC. Yeah, hello. Travis McGill from The Autumnal City. Hello. David Celine from Tracking the Nordic Ninja. Hello. And Eric Swain from The Game Critique. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> so, Eric, why don't you introduce the topic today? All right. Well, CDC, as you may or may not know, if you're getting this off iTunes, is connected to criticaldistance.com, new site set up by our own very Ben Abraham. Ben, you do a better job at describing the site than I do. You yeah, can. so, um, mm, well, Critical Distance really started um, about six months ago, maybe maybe a little bit less than that, um, but probably November of 08 when... Um, the IRC channel got set up and um, I think one morning we had like just about every every blogger in there that's ever commented on the Brainy Gamer and um, and we were just talking about like what would serve the community really well um, in the form of a site you know whether it'd be like an aggregator that would help it it was it, it always came down to whether or not we wanted a like a gatekeeper site or a giant aggregator that was like one big RSS feed cut to about three, two and a half, three weeks ago. And um, Michael McBride um, mentioned over Twitter, why, why aren't we doing something like this? And, you know, the same excuses came up again. And, and we're like, well, why don't we get a few people together to do it so that rather than being one person deciding what goes into the site, you can have a sort of consensus and keep the level, like the tone high enough and, and the level of, um, quality good enough that it's worth reading while not being, you know, elitist and all snobby. So that's kind of the, the desire and the um, motivation behind the site. A prediction, if I may? Yeah. You will fail at not being snobby at this site. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's always a danger. I don't know. Um, I think the, the few articles this week so far have been kind of interesting, especially your weekly wrap up. That was a that was a treat. And if you if you keep me with it, then uh, you'll definitely keep it lowbrow. So <laughs> we haven't we have any, any. The, the tone of posting and stuff is such a important um, important part of it, and like one of the big influences on um, I guess my idea for what the site would be was um, rock paper shotgun. Like, so I, originally the idea was basically it was a rock, paper, shotgun of video game criticism. Um, and if you, if you read them um, regularly, you know, those guys do a, a regular Sunday post where they, they just link to a bunch of yeah. criticism that's interesting from throughout the week or even longer, you know, if it's just turned something up. I think what you're trying to get at is that um, critical distance is attempting to, to filter the, the signal from the noise from the yeah. internet because there's, yeah, there's exactly. just so many people talking mm -hmm. that it's really hard to get what's worthwhile and what's you know just being echoed and also by the time the uh the big news sites grind out the newest games i think critical distance is trying to pick up the uh the actual criticism that comes out 
uh, you know, once people have enough critical distance from the game itself in order to say something uh, intelligent about it. Sparky Clarkson is the genius of that. He did, he, what was it? It was Fallout, Prince of Persia, then he did Bioshock. But Bioshock is the one that had the real distance from it, and that thing went, that, that was like 5,000 words of just all the, of like half the articles he found. Yeah, I'm trying to do that with the with Braid, and it's it's quite an undertaking, especially for something that had so many people talking about it. It's definitely worthwhile, though, to have a comp uh, compilation that large and that in-depth. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, people get, they they read bits and pieces of it before going on to the next uh, next thing, so. I, I have a question, and this is probably a good segue, but what is what is the present nature of game criticism in everyone's blogs? Because it seems not just sporadic, but it seems like <laughs> it almost a little stagnant in some places to me. Well, personally, um, game criticism has been, at least in the academic field that I am in, has been put with interactive media in general. So usually game criticism is put in as like a nod when they're talking about bigger issues of interactive media and not just the game itself. That's what I'm thinking. It's like to take from uh, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, it seems that a lot of the criticism is focusing on the form and not so much the ideas of the pro of what's coming out. And a lot of what's coming out seems to be more commentary, the best of the games that can be criticized. I'm thinking Braid, No More Heroes, seem to be commentary on the form rather than any independent cultural idea. And they're what we latch on to more than... Uh, the Bioshocks, where it's making a commentary on the world around it rather than the artistic medium. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And um, I can't comment for anyone else, but um, the kind of stuff that I do on my site, SLRC, started as, as like a place for my thesis research and stuff, but it's ended up just as a, you know, kind of general dumping ground for any kind of weird angle that I want to write about. The, the kind of criticism that I want to do is, um, like, obviously I can't critique um, design as well as people who've kind of studied that sort of thing, but I can critique and I can look at, you know, the use of music and the use of sound and, you know, stuff that I have a little bit of experience and training in and, like, focus in on that and really specific, specifically narrow in on that sort of stuff um, because, you know, because I know that sort of thing and... I those can't really were, comment on some other things. Those were definitely some of your more fascinating posts, like uh, the Halo, the Halo interviews. That that's when you you seem to really shine about your subject matter. But I, and I see that. But like, what's what's everyone else focused on? Um, no, I'm I'm mostly focused on right now. I guess uh, finishing my masters. So I've been dealing with game theory and, and game design from an interactive media, sort of uh, art installation point of view. Viewing games as, as sort of elements of a cultural lexicon that can be used, changed and used in ways to then comment back on that same culture and make artistic statements about the culture. That's more or less my focus. So I guess my, my posting has been really sporadic and off topic a lot and dealing more with the project I'm working on at the moment. That's essentially what, what I do at, uh, at Tracking the Nordic Ninja is, I mean, that, that's a nickname that a friend of mine gave me in college. So 
Um, it's more so my personal endeavors and my personal thoughts on a lot of things. And I think that's why I like critical distance so much is because it gives me a chance to kind of highlight things that uh, developers and fans need to hear instead of what uh, they think they do or what they want to. I think that's an interesting point, though, um, that you that you raise. Um, I've, I've been noticing that, um, I don't know, how many times have you guys ever started stumbled across like a new blog and gone, oh, this is a cool post, um, this looks like some interesting stuff, and then you never come back again? Um, I do it all the time because yeah. I, I, I personally – I, I get the most out of um, a piece of writing or criticism when I know the person who's writing about it. Like if I've read a, like their body of, you know, posting that they've sort of built up over, you know, six months or a year or whatever. Um, just because, I don't know, that personal context I think adds so much to criticism. And um, if you don't, <clears throat> excuse me, if you don't like, get that kind of context if you don't understand that this person's british and that they've got this kind of history or this person's american or whatever well it, it seems like that that sort of con contextual information would help you better understand the the subtext to whatever they've written yeah yeah exactly i didn't need that so much but uh most of what i started following was based upon recommendations of the few blogs that I did manage to found that connect me to other blogs and the heavy recommendations of those, I started following regardless. And I sure. uh, was very well rewarded. That's how I found most of you. Like Ben, I didn't know you were from Australia until I've been reading your blog for about a month or so. I was trying the other day to try to recall how I found this whole confab. And um, I think I, I was heavily into Twitter at the time because uh, I was trying to use it for a project I was working on. And I think I just did a Twitter search for games and gamer and found Raining Gamer and Corvus and Ben and just started following you guys, I think, on Twitter. It's a little bit creepy, Alex. Yeah, I know. We didn't hear, uh, hear your view on criticism, where you, what angle you come from. Um, well, I'm finishing up uh, my master's degree in creative writing. So my goal was to focus on it, uh, you know, from a creative writer's perspective. But I haven't, uh, haven't been doing a bunch of criticism recently. They're more focused on uh, Corvus Elrod's blogs of the roundtable uh, topics, and so I usually get about a post out a month for that, uh, with all the schoolwork and everything. Sometimes two. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm I'm drawn to the to the creative aspect right now. But hopefully I can get back in on the uh, criticism side uh, sometime soon. How about you, Murray? Um, I started out, like Alex, not really sure what my focus would be on going you know, from topic to topic. But like lately, if you've been going onto my site, like I've put in like, a lot of stakes in the industrial structure of the video game business and how criticism should be part of that structure. Like I've been arguing, arguing about art and commerce a lot, if you've been visiting lately and what effect that has on the medium as viewed as not only entertainment but an artistic form in itself. So that's lately the direction that my blog has been taking when I'm not doing, oh, let's talk about this certain element of an author or designer. Me, me personally, is like I didn't exactly, I knew the general area of what I want to do for criticism, but I came at it from thanks to being an English major 
and at the time being taking a lot of literary criticism courses, I've now seemed to be focusing that those skill those skills there on the different games. And it's kind of hard to to do that with an interactive medium, especially with the state of where many video games are. Well, with criticism, do you think that we should merely focus on video games as you know art and culture, and not say that it has to have a role in politics or the way it affects us as a society? But I, I, don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's fully separate. I mean, if you look at any any sort of uh, cultural or artistic medium. Um, they're not separate from politics. You know, they're politics is part of the culture. Yeah, exactly. And and they both feed and, and inform each other. I mean, television, movies, painting, sculpture. I mean, you know, it's like, when, when they were the, like, the most relevant artistic cultural mediums, yeah, music, sorry, um, they were very much ingrained in politics. And they have their own politics within. I mean, politics is just how people get along in groups. You know, it's the dynamics that happen when money and power and influence is thrown into the mix. I think I think the difference, though, is that uh, when you're focusing on an individual work rather than a genre or the medium or an industry as a whole, because a lot of what I've been reading lately, partially thanks to GDC being so recent, is that it has been on the medium as a whole rather than individual titles or subjects like it had been last year. With huge debates going on about Fallout and Mirror's Edge and Braid before that. That's something that's been bothering me a little bit. Uh, I think I think you were saying earlier, Eric, about there being seeming kind of stagnant right now. And I think that part of that is because there aren't a lot of big titles coming out, and it seems like the even the game criticism seems to focus on those bigger titles. But there's a ton of indie games coming out that that may even be more. Uh, deserving of the of the criticism that don't seem to get as much time i guess because they don't draw as many people uh how to burn the rope got a lot of attention last year even within the glut as i recall it was it was a it, okay. was a it was a it was form commentary on the medium it okay. and it, since it was short enough it i think it was kind of what was impressive it was so short and still made such a big statement about the medium there, there was um, if you guys remember randy Bama's missional uh, Randy Bama, Municipal Abortionist, which was uh, another great game from last year, and it was probably my second favorite of all of last year behind, you know. After, I wonder what. Yeah, I wonder what. Um, because it was so, it wasn't like a commentary on the form. It wasn't, um, like, it, it was an art game. It was a game that was, um, okay, so case in point, last night, Roger Travis, um talked about how, you know, de the definition of classic, what makes a classic video game. And he was talking along the lines of being able to get a kind of a new meaning out of every playthrough. And um, Randy Barmer is like the game that I, like I, for about six months, I played it every every couple of weeks. You know, you just fired it up for five minutes. And and it was it was interesting because it's so ambiguous and it's so layered and, and the meaning is so, I don't know, it's like a... It's like a real classic for me, so... I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. Oh, we should definitely check it out. I, I wrote up a... It was actually in my in the introduction of my thesis, I mentioned it, because it's um, the, the best art game that I've played yet. Well, Ben, for people that don't know, everyone is... We're assuming that your favorite game of last year was Far Cry 2. No. 
Aww. <laughs> really? No that, that, that wouldn't be a wrong assumption. No. Well, compare compare the politics of that game to Far Cry 2, because that also had a lot of flack and a lot of discussion around that. Yeah, well, uh, okay, so so Randy Balmer is like a five-minute game, and, um, oh, well, it took a bit longer than that, but but the initial re- response to it was was like, People read it as being, you know, about trying to induce pain in the player because it's got all these flashing lights and incredible epileptic seizure-inducing strobes and um, loud noises and this really crazy aesthetic. And, like, you can read it as being about this. And, like, the whole act, like, because abortion's in the title, some people are like, ooh, abortion. But it's sort of kind of almost incidental if you took out all the abortion references, of which they're kind of, the they're really, really obtuse at best, you can kind of read it almost any way you want, and it's really weird and strange, which is kind of cool. I like it. Any other uh, suggest? Any other ideas of uh, indie games that might have had the same impact? Uh, passage, the marriage. Yeah, I don't you know. Oh, the marriage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the marriage is great. Ruben and Lullaby, which I loved. That was a great yeah, game. It's really good. Because that, se- that seems like sort of a, a, of an idea rather than a form commentary. And I think it's good that they don't get totally... that I don't know, that the games that are considered art games aren't just solely form commentaries. I get really kind of tired of, of art that is just about the medium. Especially with such a young medium. Well, art... Well, in the video games... In video games, it's kind of different than any other medium in that form commentary has to take presence in very good gameplay to make its commentary. Sure. I mean, Corvus, like, an example of that is Corvus was telling me about um, a play session he had at GDC. You know, he was talking about his uh, sort of RPG system that he's got developed, and it is sort of a subtly masked commentary on playing the game itself. Like, you end up being some sort of, like, lizard alien race that has to infiltrate the population of a planet and play a certain um, role in the society of the planet in order to enact the story. And, and, and it was all made up right before they started playing. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but it, it was that the, the people playing the role-playing game were playing characters in the role-playing game who were also playing characters on the planet. You know, it was that, that all that layering of role playing that I found really interesting. That as that was a way of, of commenting on the medium of role playing without being overly pretentious about it. And that's the pitfall that a lot of medium centric art tends to fall into, I guess. But it's also such in, built in such a way that it doesn't it doesn't seem like it could get dull anytime soon because it'll keep things fresh and it would never it would never fall into that trope of just being there for its own sake. Yeah, it doesn't get into the way of actually playing the game. You know, it, it's not beating you over the head with the idea that you're really a character playing another character on the planet, so, ooh, look at that. You know, it's just that it's something he's got in there that is really a big part of how he conceptualizes his system, but isn't to the point where it's numbing the player to the joy of just playing a game. Every time I see the, the next layer that, that he puts onto the game and, and the next little addition that he does and watching it grow just makes me more and more giddy about it because it's such an interesting system oh, and yeah. it's, it's coming together so well. 
and and for the record, um, we're we're all talking about Corvus Elrod from Man Bites Blood. Alex, do you have an example of a game that uh, frustrates you in the way that it looks at the form of video games? Passage, kind of. Um, it's more a a general sort of instinctual feeling I have towards it. Um, I really loved it, but at the same time, I felt it was a bit overhyped. And do you think that that game was supposed to be a comment on video games, or...? I don't think it was a game. And why not, to play the devil's advocate? <laughs> because there was not really... Okay, I'm breaking out the quotes that I got earlier. So, you know, last year I took this, this seminar, this game theory seminar that looked at um, game theory and design from an artistic standpoint, like how artists have approached it throughout the ages. And in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of writing about this. Um, in particular, there was a lot of sort of attempts to define what games were, specifically by Johan Housinga, who was a, a Dutch philosopher who, who was from the city I was living in last year and the Netherlands. Um, so he was really big there. He's kind of a local hero. And I got to read and, and talk a lot about his stuff. But he considered a game a free activity. Uh, standing quite consciously outside ordinary life uh, as being not serious, but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. Now, another guy I like a lot, a French philosopher, Roger Caillois, I'm probably butchering his name, I do that with French words, uh, but he considers, uh, he, he expands on uh, Housinghouse's definition and says um, that a game is an activity which is essentially free, separate, uncertain, unproductive, governed by rules, and make-believe. And the reason why it's not really a game is because it's not uncertain. I don't know, it's not separate to me from the idea of more or less a, a slightly interactive linear story. I mean, that's yeah, I know what you mean by it, that. Yeah, it, it, it only ever has one outcome. You can move around in, within the, the, the sort of space of the game and kind of mess individually and, and create your own sort of story. Uh, your own fabula, as Corpus likes to call it, but it's not truly interactive. I'm not saying it needs multiple endings. I'm just saying there's not there's not much you can do beyond what you're you know what he's got laid out as sort of the point. Did any of you guys catch um, the Escapist article a few weeks ago about um, how Half Life and um, Half Life Two, as well as I think it was Grand Theft Auto and one other game, like, told their story. It was like uh, Invisible Strings or something. String Theory, I think, actually, on The Escapist. Well, it, it talked about um, a similar sort of thing, and, and I think it's, like, a, a valid criticism that Alex is making. Like, Half-Life 2 just, it's, it, um, like, you only ever end in the same way. So even though, like, you can do the levels in, you know, you can you, you can sort of, take as long as you want, or you can do them as quickly as you want, or you can go take a different path through them, or you can, you know, you can do them all by walking backwards or Those triggers are like still going to hit in the exact Trigger. same yeah. space. Well, I think yeah, you exactly. Can, you exactly. can apply that to a lot of video games. But, I mean, uh, at least Passage does have a critical choice to make in the game that determines, you know, what the... I mean, it ends the same if you look at yeah, it and what I was, one way. Yeah, and what I was going to ask about that was whether, um, Alex, I don't know whether you thought that that was a deliberate thing. Maybe it's, it seemed to me like that the passage was using the constraint that, um, you know, that real 
narrowness, you know, you've got this corridor to walk down as a commentary on, you know, your life and mortality itself. I think he was. Um, given Roar's other work, and I've played pretty much everything he's ever made, um, I would say, yeah, uh, given the way he looks at, at other work, or g given the way he looks at life in general, I, I would say it was definitely a, a conscious choice. Well, you can go. You can't go more than left and right in passage. You can uh, avoid meeting the wife and explore downwards, and uh, you can all, you can run out of of time. Uh, you know, exploring yeah. in different directions. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but and maybe yeah, I don't know. It, it's just it's like I said, it's a vague <laughs> it's a vague sort of like kind of feeling I have that that passage is just not really a game, and that's not a bad thing. There's a lot of games out there I would consider not really. Do you say games. that about the graveyard too? I see. I didn't play the graveyard. Um, I've been really limiting my gameplay stuff right now because I've been so busy. You only have uh, to do the demo. You don't need, and you pretty much have the whole thing. Yeah, I guess I don't know. Like, is it fun to play that? But see, that's no. the thing for me. Like, it, it wasn't fun to, to play be passage. Fun, that's oh, another. That, I think you have to. I think you have to enjoy it. I really do. That's what I was gonna say about passage. Is that you know, I I played passage and I, I ran through it a couple times, and I wanted to cry by the end of it. It, it yeah. was not. It was not fun to play. And um, while I, I too struggle to call it a game, um, I'm reminded of a conversation that we had, me and, and some other folks, some of you might have been uh, part of it as well, but we basically kind of all agreed that a game, we, we, will, we will know something is a game when we see it. it it's, it's so vague in its definition that it's, it's far too subjective and... To me, passage isn't a game because it's not fun. I can respect it as a medium. I, you know, it, it does a very good job of making me want to cry, but that doesn't make me want to play it anymore. Well, it seems like you guys are setting up a distinction between uh, saying games have to be fun. Does that mean that you're also uh, deciding a final answer on uh, games cannot be art? Because art's not always fun, right? I, I have to I have to step in here and I, I really I really disagree with the fun aspect and it's because of another game that was announced very recently. I thought I wasn't gonna I thought I could avoid bringing this one up at six days of Fallujah and how you have the developers and the PR somehow aren't on the same page. One is saying they're trying to be respectful, the other one says they want to make an entertaining and fun game. The thing is, is I would not want this game to be fun. If I were to play it, I would want to be, I would want to be annoyed. I would want to be depressed. I would want to be, I want it to be compelling enough to get me to go forward to see what happens next. But I would not, I don't want to enjoy doing the actions that I would be forced to do in that situation. So to me, it doesn't need to be fun. What it does need to do is be compelling because the best example I can think of is in movies is, Apocalypse Now, that is not a fun movie. I would like to argue, being the film guy that's here, that not all films are based on their narrative, which it seems that much of our criticism has been based off of, because, because there's a lot of experimental film and avant-garde film where there is no coherent narrative, and narrative is such a loose part of what those films are, that you don't need narrative to come up with these thematics or ideas that we're talking about. And you guys seem to put a lot of stake in 
narrative and fun together in these games. And it seems like you guys are just forgetting that their video games also have an interactive media element to them. I think I think you've touched on a really important aspect there. Um, that really the distinctions we're trying to draw between you know content in the medium it, are aren't, aren't valid. Just the really the real distinction needs between how the how the medium is reacted to or interacted with. And that's what makes a game a game. A game is truly interactive, not just reactive. It, it, elicit, it elicits responses from you, and you, and it changes you through those responses, but then you um, change it through your own responses to it. You know, so the game can, you know, the, the system or the medium adapts to you at the same time that you're adapting to it. It's the difference between other passive mediums, you know, that are just reactionary. I would I would take it even a step further and say that it, just as a thought a thought experiment, I'd actually have to think about this more. But I think like the term video game itself, as if you break down to the words, may be somewhat outdated because not everything that we would consider is gamey, as in the old strictest sense of the word. And I'm wondering if game might be a sort of out of date term to where we're headed. And it, the term video game has become more of an all-encompassing term of interactive media that has just become culturally accepted instead of saying interactive media. And that sure. the words that formed it are now out of date. Sure, but we can change, you know, the, the words video game can change uh, as the meaning changes, what we associate yeah, with it. So, Let me just stop this conversation for a bit. Because, you know, we started off talking about criticism and how we want games to be about ideas and how they always go back to form, but yet we've spent probably the last half hour talking about the form of, of a video game. So do you think it's the responsibility of us as you know, critics to come out with these ideas for games or the responsibility of designers to create games with more ideas? I think there are games with ideas. It's just, it's debatable whether games are new or not. Uh, the criticism for it is definitely new and we're just, and I think we're, more comfortable with the with trying to figure out the form rather than looking at the ideas and then i think it may be partially our fault on in that process because there are games out there with ideas i'm i'm working on two of them right now yeah and i think the i think that's um partially where the review side of criticism comes in i think it would be nice to see some more reviews that were willing to call out the games uh that weren't uh pushing where you know, we may like to see them pushed. That's a loaded word in this industry. So, are you talking about like uh, the IGNs and the Kotaku's, or no? I think I think that they should do the reviews that they're doing. Um, but I think that it would be nice to see reviews that were willing to call out the games that get high scores. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of the big places tend to focus on the polish of the game and the. Uh, you know, everything works how it's supposed to, and that gets uh, more focus than what the game's trying to do and whether or not it actually accomplishes it. Um, like Gears of War 2 may get uh, great reviews because it's a beautiful-looking game and the technology is very well built, um, but whether or not, you know, it accomplishes what it's accomplishing story-wise or whether it's pushing the medium in a direction uh, that's new... It might be nice to call some of those things out as well. 
uh, I did a retrospective on two reviews of the of Nobi Nobi Boy from the same site and how it was they were so vastly different. And I actually looked at the language and I noticed that they were fo- one focused on the gameplay aspect and one focused more on the experience aspect. And the experience aspect got three points higher on the scale, three full points higher on the scale. It seems to me reviews aren't, themselves aren't quite sure what they're trying to do, and that's where a lot of confusion comes from that word. So, Well, I see a huge lacking, because you talked about Gears of War, and we have so many World War II games, yet no one seems to have brought up the you know, idea of World War II and how these games commentate on that point of history. Someone wrote a post on this that World War Two is just a sh- is just a window dressing for a war game, and that you could and and someone and uh, someone else pointed out that yeah, I think that uh, Killzone Two is really just World War Two game in space. Sure, and World War Two is a it's a safe war to set your game in because no one's going to get upset that you're shooting the enemies. Well, Nazis have always had a free ride. The movie industry learned that in the 40s. If you're shooting Nazis, you have a free ride to do anything you want. But let's look at Call of Duty 4, and how come no one seems to have jumped on the idea of you know modern war and the politics of that? There have. I mean, SOCOM, Socom did it, and uh, Garaz has been doing it for a while. Rainbow Six. Rainbow Six, somewhat. The Rainbow Six has only ever been about modern Counterterrorism. Well, any anything Tom Clancy has been more about modern counterterrorism. Even the Splinter Cell games, you could argue that. Yeah. I mean, they're not. They're not. You know, they're a stealth combat game, so they're, they're not very accurate. I don't. I would debate some of their accuracy, but I don't want them to be accurate. You know, it's a fun game. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, that's yes, yeah, that's right. But so, uh, so what was what was the original question again? Was it to do with um, games or games criticism? I just, I just sort of lost that in the discussion. Why Crame's criticism doesn't seems to focus more on uh, form than ideas. So what, what are the Tom Clancy's trying to say? Um, yeah, right. I, I, don't think, I don't think it's a bad <laughs> thing that these games come out and people enjoy them and they're reviewed well. Um, but I think there's a, uh, with our community, that um, it's possible to kind of point out, you know, we can... One one thing we can do is point out the games that may go under the radar that are trying something new, um, but also if we're going to do someone's going to do a review um, of a game, they can point out what the game's not doing as well, and also comment on more than the form, uh, but also the you know how polished the mechanics and the graphics and the sound and everything are. They seem to comment more on the the total the whole package. Well, I think getting back to the original question, you know, why games criticism um, ends up being focused more on the form rather than the various ideas and within the uh, the instances that show up in the form is because that we're still a little uncertain about what makes this such an interesting, compelling medium. You know, we're we're still trying to define the medium within context of all these other cultural mediums we have like film and television being the most relevant or most current you know new mediums um, and that's what and that was what i was saying everyone sees well the thing that makes video games difference is their interactivity and yeah. they take that interactivity to gameplay and gameplay is the form and people focus more on that than what the mechanics and gameplay means to the idea well Although, well i think that um 
the 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 big problem is that like we everybody gets the idea that video games are interactive and that's the form, but nobody's really sure yet how like how that form translates into meaning. So like how come the passage um, is about life? How come the marriage, which is all about this abstract stuff, is about the marriage? Obviously, you know, because it's in the title. But if it weren't in the title, would anybody still get it? And like the process of how how our games mechanics creates that meaning, I think, is still totally up for grabs. Nobody's really identified how it works. But to bring up your favorite game and uh, its designer, Clint Hawking, I don't know how you pronounce that in all caps, is <laughs> that you have the emergent gameplay and all these little mechanics that don't have anything to do with each other except when they happen to pop up at the most inopportune moment and it somehow creates a whole new dynamic. That itself seems to be where many, a, a lot of games, are open world games anyway, are starting to veer over as an ex- to explore to see what can be done with that idea. You're the yeah, well, so, expert, so. so so the clean talking, the last clean talking talk that he gave at um, at GDC was all about intentionality on um, from a few years ago. And um, what do you what do you get on about? He was talking about um, like the dynamics. How the the main thing I got out of it was that like Far Cry Two had this back and flow, back and forth dynamic between composing what the player composing what they want to do and then actually executing it and then getting kicked out of it and go kicked out of the executing phase and going oh crap i have to replan again and that cyclical thing but um what that actually means like is you know the player is improvising but like does does that like that's just the form and what does that form actually mean and i don't well, know pull, I, can't really yeah, say. I thought you i thought you pulled out some sort of interesting things in your earlier posts about how it even added to this bleak and depressing world on the African savanna. One guy, I th- I'm not, sh- I think, I'm not sure where it was in a comment or a post where he commented at the very end of the game that uh, he got an attack of malaria right before he was going to do it. And he thought that was a scripted event because it, yeah, it, well. it hit him so hard. And he says, Oh crap. No, no, not now, not now. Yeah, well, well, that's interesting because you can't you can't read that mechanic of getting you know a malaria attack. That has no meaning outside of the context that it's within the storyline as well. So but, I think but that that provides the context, and that is, and any story I'd argue, and that every game has some variant of story. Even when you were a ch- like an eight year old child tossing a ball up in the air, who here wasn't whispering to themselves, and he steps up to the plate. Even if you're 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 imagining mm. you're providing a narrative, even in the simplest of game circumstances, even outside the video video game realm, you can't. I don't think you can take games out of some type of narrative perspective. So that is yeah. part of the game. What's the narrative of Tetris? It has something to do with the Soviet Union. Yeah, is I it, think it was to do with the the Protestant work ethic, I think. I think, I think Ian Burgos said that. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. He it's, did say it's, it's a human... And I guess my point with my point saying that is that to invest something that seems random and chaotic and without meaning, with meaning, is a human tendency. I mean, that's what we did with yeah, uh, weather patterns. But it's, also a, it's also a theme that came up in many books that, uh, that of humans trying to pull meaning from an unfeeling, chaotic world. That is sure. itself a theme. I would argue that's the theme of Far Cry 2. 
Except Far Cry 2 isn't really... I mean, Far Cry 2, in, in terms of, like, being a formal system of rules, or, in, like, in a formal system of rules in, like, Passage or Tetris, or an informal system of rules like Far Cry 2 or Grand Theft Auto, where they're still fairly directed, I mean, that's not quite up there with, you know, the random chaos of life evolving on the planet. There are technical limitations to a video game, so it's sure. as random as we could possibly get from programming and and processing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a kind of directed randomness because yeah. it's an author has created those systems. Yeah, I mean that's like it's emergent gameplay. That's what they were kind of trying to do with Far Cry Two was to provide all of these sort of um, systems that could, through the 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 interaction of a player, make so many different types of experiences and stories and narratives but and and then you know through our tendency to to build stories out of events that happen to us or things that we see and notice which you know that that just very basic human tendency we would then make a narrative out of it the player would then make a narrative out of it you know it's it's putting the mm. the responsibility of narrative making into the hands of the player but it's not an active responsibility it's not like you're working like trying to connect the dots it's automatic What's yeah, exactly. To but there are some games that where it is something they're trying to force on you, like Passage, or The Marriage, or any or Half Life Two. You know, there or there there are games that are definitely just but those are linear games. Story, I would argue, interactive, I would argue, interactive stories. I do think that's forcing it because those are linear games, and I qualify the statement that open world games are better. This Grand Theft Auto Four, Far Cry Two. I would say the open worldness of the games is better for emergent gameplay than a than a linear one, which really relies upon a set set plot. I mean, emergent gameplay, yes. And it was interesting to see the post most of the posts about Far Cry Two, or at least I saw a lot popping up, were ones that. Um, described like a certain experience in the game and they weren't necessarily commenting on the overarching uh, storyline um, mm -hmm. and I yeah. think that there are a variety of different experiences uh, that can emerge from even a linear game like Passage um, you know that that give it value you know, uh, you know at least equal to a game like Far Cry 2 where, where things would pop up because of a a, a systems working together. We've moved back to form. Yeah, well, to talk, I mean, you don't need narrative to have ideas. I mean, if you want to look at a system coming out with an idea, you should definitely look at The Sims, which is a huge idea of you know the capitalist lifestyle, the capitalist market, and the way the system is structured. I was going to say Second Life, because that seemed like the ultimate emergence at gameplay while having a full set of ideas of creativity and ideas. <laughs> I think this whole, like, what we're trying to get at in terms of the question, you know, why do we, why does game criticism always come back to form and not, not so much content and ideas is because you naturally, you know, like, like we were just sort of talking about, people naturally will make narratives out of Tetris or, you know, I mean, Sims or, you know, it's, it's something that people just do naturally. And it's something that cinema and literary theory and music theory and art theory have, discussed and talked about a lot. The new thing about games is gameplay. It's the mechanics. It's the actual form of the medium. And that's what's so interesting and compelling. But that form can go into the ideas. 
Um, and if it and sometimes it's such a large contrast, we we've even invented a new term for it, ludonarrative dissonance, like in Gears of War Two, where the mechanics seem to oppose the idea of the game. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess. Well, let's talk more about that. You mean, as far as the the big beefy soldiers that have to duck and cover behind uh, <laughs> little Yeah, if yeah. I'm wearing but, but if I'm wearing a refrigerator, I expect to be able to run at the guy. Yeah, let's talk about the little narrative dissonance of, of Gears of War 2, because personally, I view it as the Tetris of shooters. Um, I <laughs> I really dislike the, that game, the first and the second game. Um, I watched it played. I didn't play it myself. I did not get into it. I hate it. I am it's very far, big on... It's very interesting watching two buddies who like that sort of game play it and, and just watch the whole thing. It's very entertaining to do it that way. And you get everything out of it. You could possibly get out of it, too. Oh, you guys are getting so snobby. Did you not enjoy, like, the amazing queer text that's in Gears of War? Yeah. Where's Vorpal Bunny Ranch when you need him? For me, it's movement. Like, I have such a big thing about movement in games. Like, feeling really immersed in the ability to move in this sort of 3D space. You know, I really enjoyed Mirror's Edge. Um, the demo. I haven't played the full game yet. Um, full game coming. is better the second time around. One of the reasons why I've played Counter-Strike for almost 10 years is because the movement is just is great. It's very freeing to be able to move around a space so easily. Um, I get the same thing with Quake or with a lot of other FPSs. You try Killzone 2 because they tweaked the okay. or even the demo? I, I played Killzone. The first one. I don't have a PS3, so I can't do the, um, uh, the second one. Because they, they really sluggished it up. Like, if you were really... Okay. It, you it move was, like you would if you were wearing a refrigerator. It was pretty sluggish in the first one, too. That was one of the things I didn't like about it. Um, but I did play it to the end, because it was the only like PS2 game I had for a little while. Was your character also four feet tall in the first one? <laughs> uh, you uh, had four different characters you could switch between. So yeah. I think one of them maybe. Was. Maybe. Wasn't, wasn't there some sort of like militant gnome that they had in the game? I, I don't know. I've, I never. I'm, no, they they didn't. Um, but I guess like my my point like with that is that I didn't really have one. I was just sort of the idea that that gears of war that, that the gears of war trope is this cover system that they use that they they're having a third person shooter that makes you fit your environment in certain sort of predetermined ways like the entire environment is um made to toward to to have you fit it you know in order to then progress across this linear storyline that they're trying to tell and it is so limiting and boring to me that it's just like okay i see that i can go up those stairs and there's because the way the cover's laid out there's a certain way i should go up the stairs and because this environment is made a certain way it's Enemies are going to come from here. Ooh, look! I mean, there's no freedom. I'm, I don't feel like I'm really in it. I feel like I'm just pushing buttons at the appropriate time. I agree with you to an extent on Gears of Gears of War. Well, two. I haven't seen one played all the way through. That that's true. But uh, the same gameplay mechanic for a different game in Uncharted, it worked very well and seemed a lot more organic and a lot more visceral as an experience because you aren't this hulking behemoth, but you are a guy who's diving for cover out of desperation. Speaking of, of diving and, and all that and, and movement, I was going to ask Alex if he was looking forward to Dark Void. Dark Void is essentially um, going to be uh, Gears of War, um, but with a jetpack. 
and, so, your and all the covers vertical. Yeah, well, not all of it because you can also do a horizontal cover, but they they have oh. situations in in the uh, in the demo that I was watching where you'll be going up these uh, shafts that have catwalks going around the the you know the, the circular patterns, and you actually hang underneath these platforms and use them as cover because you're you're flying in midair, so you're shooting up and down instead of. Uh, horizontally and it, it looks to be you know you're, you're not in this giant hulking suit you're you're actually more nimble and uh and more free so i was wondering if you know what your thoughts on that could be and you know because it's it's such a different way of moving than Sounds like gears wars but it isn't really it's it's you all you've done is moved the camera and the gravity pull it's it's no, the same you, as before Given, this is my big thing with Gears of War, other than like being able to be up against a... There's no Z-axis movement, unless you're up against a piece of cover and you hit a button in the right time, and then you will leave over a piece of cover. And, you know, you, you, and if this game includes Z-axis movement, in addition to Y and X-axis movement, then it is taking advantage of 3D space. You know, it's letting you move at will around 3D space. So how does this discussion work into ludonarrative dissonance well because because you have this certain mechanic and it goes against what the idea of the story is and the story is that these are absolute badasses who can do anything take anything and they laugh it off they make jokes except when he's crying about his wife and but the thing is they're hiding they spend most of the game ducking and covering and hiding and which and it seems if they really are going to be overcompensating grunting manly men as the game makes us believe that they should be charging in with the shoot button held down but you can't play and survive like that where in dark void you not only have the z um you know z axis that you can then you know make use of but uh your character isn't a, a huge giant manly man i mean he, he he's a, a guy that sucks yeah, he's a guy, he's a guy who gets sucked into the into the Bermuda Triangle, and they, you know, they apparently meets um, Nikola Tesla in there, and you know, he <laughs> he, he starts, you know, he's he's basically the hero of all the survivors in in the Bermuda Bermuda Triangle. So it's more about thinking than it is about uh, you know taking cover and just killing people, which is a big part of the game, um, but it's not the only part of the game. Same with Uncharted. It's like you're the everyman, so, but in that case, ducking and covering and hiding makes a lot more sense because a few shots and you are dead, and the character knows it, and the player knows it, and all and all the little pieces match up in that way. So, Argus, are we are we talking about it being like ludonarrative dissonance being a good thing or a bad thing? Because I can see how it can be either. Um, you know, with passage, it's a good thing because it underlines this sort of. You know, it's a video game, but yet it's extremely linear, so it's really underlying the, the medium. Yeah. I don't think, I think that the reason, one of the reasons that Passage is as uh, well thought of is because it, it links gameplay and uh, meaning. Uh, they're one and the same, and I think that the whole thing with Ludonarrative Dissonance is where the gameplay is not matching uh, the meaning of the game. So, in some, is, isn't Passage really supposed to be, uh, like, a, a ludonarratively pure, as far as, as far as that goes? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I'm having a hard time trying to like really realize or understand what, what that means because it seems like ludonarrative distance is just an element that games can have to learn. And that's just, it's important to game designers and developers and critics to understand understand that as, a, as, a, as an element. Yeah, and, but I think that if someone was going to use ludonarrative dissonance in a uh, in an intelligent manner, or like they were they were planning it, then it would it would be some comment, uh, you know, a comment on, you know, they would be going in to their design thinking, oh, the story or the narrative of the game is uh, is perpendicular to the gameplay at this point, and sure. we're going to use that to say something. Sure, and. I mean, I don't know what is Cliffy B doing that with Gears of War because, to me, I mean, I would love it if <laughs> Gears of War was a satire, but I just don't think it is. No. Well, Cliffy B is no, trying to change either. his image, but it is, but it is a game that is so it is firmly based on the gameplay first and the story second. Yeah, so I think he takes that too seriously. And no, like, can you really do that though? Like we were just talking about how, you know, the form and content like they inform each other. You can't. You know, you can't like well, say, "Oh, just just pretend that this bit doesn't exist. Only play this bit." I mean, like if if you did that, why wouldn't why wouldn't the game just be horde mode like the whole time? And a lot of people said that would actually be good. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I was commenting well, on that today with well, Gears of War too. So, and to answer your question, Alex, I'd say Ludonera's dissonance is a bad thing because it takes away the mechanic from provide, helping to provide meaning to the idea. It would have limited use as a, as a positive thing. It would, you know. I don't know. It seems like it could, if it, if it is sort of underlining or highlighting or even amplifying the behavioral or emotional effect on the user, the interactor, which is, I mean, that's the point of interactive art is to, sort of adjust, or, or not, not to adjust, but to affect the emotional or behavioral state of the user. I mean, if it's That's doing good. that, then I would say it's a good thing. I was, I was going to say, if it's getting in the way of uh, the immersion into a game, if um, it's preventing something from getting across to the, to the player, then um, it's something that uh, both developers and players really need to be conscious of. Otherwise, um, games are never going to, you know, progress into something that they uh, they should they should be. Guys, uh, we're getting to an hour now. Do you want to keep going? Do you want to end it? Yeah, we can go ahead and stop it for now. And I think Dave had a really good closing remark. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, I think that's a different type of dissonance if it breaks the immersion rather than the one between the loop between the game and the narrative. I feel like that could be another podcast. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That could be the next yeah. one. I mean, I think so. could, I'm happy that be, with that being the topic for the next one. Sure. You want it? Okay. Quick summary of what we've discussed. I, I can't, I can't summarize. Yeah, what we discussed. <laughs> but, um, okay. Well, I think that was a great, great place to end our discussion for this week's podcast. how do you think the first episode went? Uh, great. I like it very, very well. This is, I could do this all every week. All right, so, um, so you can catch us all at criticaldistance.com. That's critical-distance.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah, okay. correct. And you can see us on the IRC under the Free Node server. 
GBConFab. You can check the show notes for the games and articles we mentioned in this podcast and come back next week as we talk about ludonarrative dissonance. Once again, this is the CDC Podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week.